All right. Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and to Laodicea. These are the, the churches in Revelation in which they are, are sent. And, and last week, we, we, we really saw this. This is the primary motif of the book of Revelation. That John saw some things, and that that he saw, he was to write down. And that that he wrote down, he's going to send to these seven churches. Now, last week also, we, we saw where these churches were. They were all located in Asia Minor. You can see it's modern-day Turkey there. There's, there's Greece over there to the, to the left. But these are our places. You can see the their ruins today. And it's important, and I want to pound this point, that these were real churches in real cities. And I say this because there are some who interpret Revelation in, uh, in a way that would actually deny this. They would take each of these seven churches as symbolical, uh, symbolic of church ages. I'm not sure if you've heard this before. I just want to mention this to you. Lest we get done with Revelation, someone comes along and says, oh, these aren't real churches. These are eras. Like, oh, maybe Steve didn't know that. No, I know that. All right? And I want you to know that as well. But they basically say, okay, Ephesus is, uh, is a church, the, the early church, up till about A.D. 100. Um, and just that church that was going really well and then kind of petered out a little bit. And then uh, when persecution began, about 800, Smyrna represents the persecuted church. They were told to be faithful unto death. There are people facing intense persecution. And that was from about 100 to about 313 A.D. The Edict of Milan officially ended persecution of the Christians. And then Pergamum and Thyatira, with all the, the syncretistic teaching in there, just represents the time um, from the end of the persecution until the time of the Reformation, those dark ages where there's little clarity about what's going on in history. And, and then Sardis was supposedly began at the time of the Reformation until the, the revivals came in Britain and America in the 1800s. And then Philadelphia represents the, the Church of the Great Awakenings with the Whitfield and Edwards and Spurgeon and the Wesleys. And finally, we're living in Laodicea, that modern-day church with all her wealth who's really just grown lukewarm. Now, I don't think that's an appropriate way to look at these churches. You can kind of pick out events from history to try to cram those into there, but there are times it's so stretched it's really not even plausible. Like the days after the Reformation, calling that Sardis, the dead church, that's when everything was becoming alive. They weren't dead at that point. In present day, identifying us today with Laodicea, this rich church that needs nothing, Oh, that's descriptive of America for sure, but go try telling that to Africa and to the Christians in India that, yeah, we're the rich church, we need nothing. Those churches are, are impoverished in those nations. And I simply mention these things to make you aware the interpretation's not right, I don't believe. John was writing to real churches in real cities. Now, I, I want to talk to you about the <clears throat> format of these seven letters. You can open your Bibles if you haven't already, I haven't yet, to to, John, to Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And, and all these letters to all these seven churches, they follow like the same pattern, like this, the same form over and over again. They, they begin with an address to the angel of the church. You can see there chapter 2 verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write. Chapter 2 verse 8, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write. Verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write. Verse 18, to the angel of the church at Thyatira write. It always starts with a message to the angel of one of these churches. And then after that, right, there are, well, 
but before we get to that, just talking about who these angels are, there, there are really two lines of interpretation on who these angels are. Some view them as guardian angels who watch over the church, and some view them as pastors of the church in the sense that a, an angel is a messenger, one who delivers a message. That's what pastors do. They give messages to God's church. Both these views have problems. I mean, first of all, in Scripture, we see no concept of a guardian angel given to a church. We just don't have that in Scripture. And second, nowhere in Scripture do we see pastors called angels. So what's right? I don't know. Maybe it's one of those apocalyptic ambiguities that come up here. The meaning is clear, right? The meaning is the same. This message is getting to the church. How, right, right to this angel, maybe it's getting to the church, maybe it's the leaders of the church, maybe read somehow, we don't exactly know. But the message was communicated. It's, it's clear as can be. And oftentimes that's how it is in Revelation, right? The, the details you don't know exact, and maybe there's not even a one-to-one correspondence. But in, in, in my preparation, reading and listening to pastors preach, about half of them said angels, and about half of them said pastors. And lest I be wrong, I'm just going to say, I'm not going to, I don't know either. But so is my commitment. I don't want to tell you anything that's wrong. I just want to tell you as much as I can to say what's right. And here it's, I'm not going to stand on one of these. But the message is the same, right? It's going to go to this angel, this person, this being, this, this concept, whatever. It's going to get to the churches. That's how the letters begin. They begin by addressing an angel of the church, and the angel's going to talk to the church, obviously, and, and then continues with a, a description of Jesus. So talk to the angel, and then a description of Jesus, and all these descriptions of Jesus, they go back to chapter 1 that we looked at last week, this, this vision of Jesus, when chapter 1, verse 12, John turned around to see the voice that was speaking to him, and he, he saw seven golden lampstands in the midst of the lampstand, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and a, a golden sash about his belt and eyes were filled with fire and feet of burnished bronze right out of his mouth came a sound like many waters like this that's the idea of this of this being of jesus that was pictured there and, and every every single time after the introduction to the angel we we see some description of jesus look at chapter 2 verse 1 the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven lampstands. So, in, in other words, right, this is to the angel of the church at Ephesus, I'm the one, I'm, I'm, I'm Jesus, I'm the one holding the stars and walking among the lampstands, just describing it back there. And, and again, if you remember last week in chapter 1, I believe this picture of Jesus was, was brought up just to show the magnificence and glory of Christ. And then in chapter 2, verse 8, right, the words of the first and the last, who was dead and has come to life. Jesus is called the first and the last. He's called the Alpha and the Omega back in chapter 1. Or in chapter 2, verse 12, the words of him was the sharp two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth. In chapter 2, verse 18, the words of the Son of God was eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. And, and all these inf- glimpses of Jesus, these references back to Jesus, are somehow pertinent for the church. So there, there's like a reason for it. Right? It's appropriate for the church that's facing persecution, possibly death, in Smyrna to be told that I died, but I came to life. It's appropriate for the church that's tolerating false doctrine to hear from the flaming power of Jesus, right? the, the, the voice, the, the sword from his mouth. So it's appropriate, just kind of bringing us back. And, and then after the description of Jesus, we have for the most part, although not always, but for the most part, there's something good said about the church. I know this about you, or I know this. I know that he walks among the lampstands, so he knows 
about them. He identifies what he knows. Um, what's good? And then followed by the good, oftentimes there comes the bad. right? The things that need to be reformed, the things that need to be changed, the things that Jesus is critical about. And then when a letter concludes, there are normally these two phrases, and sometimes they're in one order and sometimes they're in the other order. Here in, in, uh, with Ephesus, we're going to look at first in verse 7, we read this statement that says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's exactly the same as verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's exactly the same as verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Every single letter, every single letter, he just says this. If you have an ear, and all of us have an ear, we should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. And then at the end of uh, the letter, there's this promise to the one who conquers. If you look at chapter 2, verse 7. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Chapter 2, verse 11. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Chapter 2, verse 17. To the one who conquers... Chapter 2 and verse 26 even speaks about the one who conquers, right? The one who overcomes, the one who conquers. Like, it's going to go well. Things may be going on at church. There might be some difficulties. But if you conquer and you do well, right, you will succeed. Christ will come. He'll satisfy you. He'll take you to himself. In fact, that's, that's what the book of Revelation is about. It's about these people who are, like, waffling because of the persecution. It's difficult. He says, press on overcome, continue in the faith, despite the troubles in the church, remain faithful in following the Lord until the end. See, and you've got to remember, right? Revelation is written to persecuted Christians being urged to continue faithful in following the Lord. It's a call for all of us to persevere until the end. It's written to strengthen us so that we might persevere to conquer until the end. It's not written to confuse it's not written just for our intellectual stimulation about some sort of maybe events in the future. No, it's got real feet on the ground, practical, help us to persevere. And you see these things in, in every letter, right? There's a greeting to the angel. The angel is charged then to tell it to the churches. And you, then you've got this description of Jesus, something good, something bad, a call to hear, and then finally this promise to those who conquer. As we go week from week, right, you're going to see this pattern come again and again. We'll just... We'll see it each week. We'll just kind of comment on it. But the structure, I just wanted you to see that with these seven churches. Now, before we jump into the church at Ephesus, I want us to think about this call for us to listen. It's in every single church, in every single letter. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that is the application of these churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 to us. We are all invited to read the mail. Read the mail that was sent to Ephesus and read the mail that was sent to Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. See, these weren't private letters licked and sealed and stamped only to be opened by the church there. These were open public letters for all to read. They were intended for everybody. So it was intended for those at Ephesus to, to read Smyrna's mail and to read Pergamum's mail and for those at Pergamum to read Sardis' mail and Philadelphia's mail, and for those at Philadelphia to read Ephesus' mail and Smyrna's mail. Like everybody read everybody else's mail. And, and as I mentioned last week, like these churches, people at these churches probably knew each other. It was close enough. They traded with one another in these cities. 
Um, they were all within walking distance of each other. And they're supposed to hear that because Revelation is supposed to be read publicly. I suspect that as John sent it from Patmos, it went across the water and then went up there to Ephesus. And that was probably the first church. And then Revelation was brought to Smyrna and read there. And then it was taken to Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and then you just see it all, all the way around. And, and one by one, this whole letter, everybody's letters was read. And there was a blessing in that. In fact, if you look at chapter 1 and verse 3, it says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it, and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. There's a blessing that would come to these churches as everybody read everybody else's mail. Now, one of the things for us is I think that we're also invited to read that mail too. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. It takes it beyond just these churches, but takes it beyond even then to us. If we have an ear, we ought to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so the key application of chapters 2 and 3 is really simple. What would Jesus say about our church? What would Jesus say about Rock Valley Bible Church? Because all these churches, interesting, they're all, they're all churches, but they're all, they're all different. There's different characteristics of them. They may not be seven ages of time, but they are seven different types of churches that Jesus addresses to. But what would Jesus say about your church? In fact, that is a title of a, of a book that I have in my library that I read the portion on Ephesus this week from Richard Mayhew. Um, he was a, a dean at the Master's Seminary when I was there, and he wrote a book called What Would Jesus Say to Your Church? And it was just an exposition of, of Revelation 2 and 3. And, and that's really the application of, of this letter. You know, we've heard that, that saying before, right? WWJD, what would Jesus do? This is WWJS, what would Jesus say to your church? And it's a question really that we need to ask ourselves week by week as we see this letter to Ephesus this week, we'd say, well, would God say those things to us? Would Jesus say those things to us? Is it true of us? So it's going to cause in every church some introspection. It's going to look and see, are we, are we doing the things that are commended by Him? Are we doing the things that are rebuked by Him? And the heart here, the criticism of, of uh, Ephesus comes right in verse 4. This is the, the, the thing that He's going to have to speak to them. He says in verse 4, chapter 2, I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Or as the song we sang says, right, tell Ephesus you've lost your first love. So the apt application for us this morning comes really by a way of a question, right? Have we as a church lost our first love? The question really comes to all of you. Have you even individually, maybe you've lost your first love? In some place. It comes to me. Have I lost my first love? So the title of my message this morning is, Have You Lost Your First Love? We'll get there to the application of verse 4, but let, let's begin by reading the text. Revelation chapter 2, 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. 
Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, that you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He was near, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, we're simply going to walk through this verse, and just to help give you some hooks that you can hang your thoughts on, I I have six points, six words to just kind of help you walk through this. All of them begin with the letter C to show that I've put a little bit of thought into this. First word is Christ. There we see, we have a mention of Jesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven lampstands. And we saw this back in chapter 1. We saw the strange image that we, someone drew about Jesus, right, trying to be realistic. And again, this is the picture they saw, but this is not realistic. This is apocalyptic literature. But all these things communicate some things. And the particular detail here of the image that John pulls out of Jesus right here at this moment, or Jesus actually pulls out of himself because it's Jesus who's writing, is that he's got the seven stars in his right hand. And he's walking among the seven lampstands. Seven stars are these angels to these churches, right, that communicates to them. And these seven lampstands are the churches. So, so Jesus is walking closely with the churches. He knows what's going on. It's not like these, these lampstands are far off. No, they're right around him. He knows what's there. And in fact, that's even how he continues, this, this knowledge that Jesus has. He says, I know your works, verse 2 your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who found themselves, who have called themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. Jesus knows what's going on in the church at Ephesus. He knows what's going on at Rock Valley Bible Church. He walks closely among the churches. And so here's my second point, another C, commendation. This is what they're doing well. And they are commended really well. Ephesus had a lot going for it. They did many things. They labored for Jesus. They toiled for Jesus. They patiently endured for Jesus. They didn't tolerate evil or false teaching. They were discerning. They were patient. They didn't give up. And all for the name of Jesus. And all these things are good things. It's good to work and toil and labor for Jesus. It's good to tell others of Jesus. It's good to be the hands of mercy in serving others. It's good to work in the nursery or to teach the children or to pray for others or to bring snacks on Sunday morning for our fellowship time or to welcome people into your home or prepare meals for those in need or visit the sick or give to the hungry Give to the poor. Help the weak. Serve your neighbor. It's good on May 20th to show up for the work day. It's good to mow the lawn. It's good to shovel the snow. It's good to greet people as they come into church. It's, it's good to give to the church financially. It's good to say the encouraging word. It's good to lead in worship. It's good to sing to the Lord and join in worship. It's good to lead the youth group. It's good to be a youth group with other kids. Good to hang around church, looking for someone to encourage. It's good to rejoice with those who rejoice. It's good to weep with those who weep. Pray for those in the church. It is good to work and toil and labor for Jesus. All these things are needed 
and necessary for Rock Valley Bible Church to, to continue what it's doing. It's good for the church at Ephesus, needed for the church at Ephesus to do that. And Jesus knew that. He, he recognized that. Chapter 2, verse 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. And I believe the church in Ephesus learned well what Paul wrote to them in the book of Ephesus, the book of Ephesians, talking about the way the church should function. I'm not sure if you remember this passage, Ephesians 4, uh, 11 and 12 how God gave some as apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers, Ephesians 4, verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. In other words, when Paul wrote to this church, he said God has given leaders of the church to equip the saints to work in the church to build up the body of Christ. And that's exactly what they were doing in Ephesus. The people were serving and the church is being built. They did exactly what Paul had told them to do some 40 years earlier. And beyond mere labor of the church, the church was fighting for purity of the church. Again, verse 2, I know your works and your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, but have found them to be false. Even even this first part here, you cannot bear with those who are evil. I take this to mean that they're practicing church discipline in some way. If there are those in their midst who are professing Christ, yet living contrary to the profession, the church wasn't tolerating it. That we cannot bear evil in our midst. And such a one would surely have been confronted gently, urged to follow in, in actions of what they profess out of their mouth, given time for repentance for sure. But when people refuse to walk in the ways of the Lord, the church would banish them from their midst. They cannot bear with those who are doing evil. The church in Ephesus, it's a good thing. And may I note, by the way, that Jesus commends the church for being intolerant. Contrary to what our culture says today. Tolerance, tolerance. No, Jesus says it's good that you're intolerant. Not being able to endure or bear with those who are evil. This stands in contrast, by the way, to Thyatira. Thyatira, this church, embraced and tolerated the immorality of Jezebel. Revelation chapter 2, verse 20. Immorality in the church, embracing it. And there are churches today who embrace immorality in the church. That's not tolerating Ephesus. Jesus says that's a, that's a good thing. They, they, they got wicked people out of their church if they're professing to be Christ. You just can't live that way. It's a, it's a blot on the church of Christ. Furthermore, the church of, of Ephesus was discerning. It says at the end of verse 2, you have tested those who call themselves apostles or not and found them to be false. Now, in the days of the early church, the Bible hadn't been gathered together and codified into one document, right? So we can go to this to find out the, the truth of what we need to, to follow. Um, letters were around. They, they were written, right? And there, there were some things followed. But there were often in the early church, there were these people who would come around, prophets, uh, perhaps even apostles sent from God to help support all these churches that were exploding at the time of the New Testament. It's a, really ripe for false teachers. But these, these men came in to re- seek to guide the church. But the church here was to test them. And they tested them, and they found them to be false many times. And, and again, the church at Ephesus had learned well what Paul had said to them earlier, right? The leaders were equipping, the saints were serving, and the church being built in unity. And the result in chapter 4, Ephesians 4, verse 14, is that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. 
The church wasn't being carried about by every wind of doctrine. They were testing the people who were coming in and even finding some to be false, casting them out. They're discerning about the truth they were teaching, not letting them come into the church, not tolerating false teaching. And this is unlike the church at Pergamum. The church of Pergamum, if you look at chapter 2, verse 14, they held to the teaching of Balaam, which was, was wrong, which was bad, put a stumbling block before the people of, of Israel. Verse 16, right? They, they also held to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, whatever that is. We don't know what it is, but it's bad. Jesus said, you hold to the Nicolaitans. In fact, Jesus is going to say in verse 6, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. That's part of their discernment, right? They discerned the Nicolaitans were bad, but the church at Pergamum embraced the Nicolaitans in the view of tolerance, perhaps. But not so in Ephesus. They didn't tolerate false teaching. And maybe this, this uh, thrust for discernment comes from when Paul was, was with them in the early days of the church. Remember when Paul was traveling about, and he came to Miletus, was trying to get to uh, Jerusalem for Pentecost? And he called the Ephesian elders to them at Miletus right there on the shore. And he told the elders, among several things, he said in Acts 20, 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. In other words, shepherds, elders of this church, the church is vulnerable. And it's just like a flock of sheep are vulnerable to wolves, so also a church is vulnerable to wolves coming in, false teachers coming in, arising from your midst to carry away people after them. And I think this church in Ephesus understood this, and they were discerning, and they were protective of the church. They rejected those who brought any type of false teaching in there. And on top of that, right, the church was faithful to Christ, to the name of Jesus. If you look at verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. The church had been faithful for years, and maybe that's because Timothy was a pastor there, and Timothy was... Paul's protege, if you will, doctrinally discerning, right, preaching the word, right, pressing on. John even had some measure of activity. The, the writer of Revelation knew about the church in, in Ephesus. We know that. But the church here with these faithful pastors, these faithful men, were faithful for years, enduring patiently, bearing up, not growing weary. You see, the church in Ephesus wasn't some flash-in-the-pan sort of church that put up a, a storefront. Right, just rented out a storefront for just a year or two and then vanished. No, church at Ephesus endured. And from best we can tell, this writing of Revelation is about 40 years after um, the writing of the book of, of this, this encounter at the Acts chapter 20 with um, Paul and Miletus, the elders at Miletus. And 40 years later, for an entire generation, this is a faithful church. And I just say this, everything that Ephesus was is everything that I would long for Rock Valley Bible Church to be. I would long for us to be a discerning church. I would long for us to have works and toil and patient endurance for a long time. Be hardworking, be serving, be diligent, be discerning. I would love for Jesus to say, verse 2, I know your works, 
at Rock Valley Bible Church. I know your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and have found them to be false. And I know this about you, Rock Valley Bible Church, that you are enduring patiently and you are bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. I would love for Jesus to say that about our church. And in many ways, I think he can. In fact, of any churches of the seven churches here, I think we probably most identify with Ephesus than we do any other church. I think God can say many of those things about us. But then we come to the but. Now, oftentimes there are the blessed buts in Scripture, right, where there's the bad news, but the good news. And this is opposite. This is the good news, but here comes the bad news. My point, simply calling it caution. After being commended, Jesus cautions them, not all is good in Ephesus. And their problem was, verse 4, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. They had a love, and for some reason they abandoned it. So amidst all this activity, they abandoned this love. Reminds me a lot of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, does it not? If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers, understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have not, if I have all faith, so to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Just how God looks at it, if we've left our first love. Difficult. But you may have all this activity. It might look really good as a church without love. Nothing. Now interpretations abound at this point. What does it mean that they abandoned their love? What does it mean they abandoned the love they had at first? Well, some say they lost their love for God. I mean, after all, this is what what happens when we come to Christ, right? God is our, our first love. We realize that God's love has come upon us in Christ, that that by His grace, He's forgiven us of our sin, that we simply believe in Him and embrace Him. Our love just abounds and overflows. Our first response is to God, is how kind He has been to bring us in, to be part of His family. And we love God as a result of that. Some people say that they lost this love for God. Others say they lost their love for others. Right? The, the church that at one point right, came together in vibrant love for one another. After a generation, sin had crept in and offenses had been made and there had been problems and difficulties. People were offended. People disappointed with each other. And they grew hard towards one another and they were not loving towards one another. Still others say they lost their love for those without Christ. Right? They, they lost their love for the lost. And isn't that the case when someone comes to Jesus? Like a first, first initially, right? They come to understand the grace of God, which, which changes them and transforms them. And they're, they're so excited about it. I mean, everything is new at, at church and people and the Bible. And it's all new that they can't help but tell others. And they start telling their friends and their family about their hope in Christ. They tell their neighbors and their coworkers. But then when the newness wears off, given some time, you have relational drift with outsiders because you can't bear with the the wicked men, and so all of a sudden your new friendship was in the church, and you don't have much contact with those outside the church, and soon you find it's just easier to keep to yourself 
rather than go and tell your, your family or friends because you've faced enough rejection before in the past. You don't want to face that again. And so likewise, some people say the first love is evangelism. So you say, what, what is the love being talked about here? Is it the upward love for God that was abandoned? Was it the inward love for others in the church that was abandoned? Was there outward love for evangelism for those who were lost that was abandoned? We don't know. Again, in listening to this, I heard people come dogmatically down what's right. I think, I believe, the Spirit of God has left it intentionally ambiguous for us. So there's some sort of love, some sort of affection that we used to have that we don't have anymore, lest we think that our continued heart for evangelism is what really matters. Right? It's okay if we're cold to God, but we love evangelism, right? If someone says, well, they left their first love, they, they lost their love for evangelism. Well, I love evangelism, right? but your love for God is really not there. I think it's, no, it's, it's all of those things. Unless we think it's okay that we neglect those without Christ because our love for others is what's really important and we're loving here, right? We've not left that, right? If the interpretation comes, oh, you've left your love for one another. I don't think so. I, I think that the, it's, it's really ambiguous. So the question that comes, have you left your first love? What are some things that you used to do but don't do anymore? Yvonne and I were talking about this yesterday, vulnerability time, right? One of the things I think that we have lost, uh, Yvonne and I probably, is the anticipation desire of new people at church. I mean, I remember when we were young at church, for our church to survive, new people needed to come. We need to bring them in. And um, I remember in the early days really praying for people, greeting with an open hand people who'd come in new to the church. If we're on vacation... Almost always, like, call somebody, hey, was anyone new at church? Like, is new at church? Because if people weren't new at church, the church wouldn't survive. And that anticipation, that excitement, the first couple years continued on. But I think we've lost that. When we're on vacation now, I'm not calling people and saying, hey, was anybody new at church? We may have lost that. I don't think I feel as desperate as I did before. Longing just for people to come into our midst to enjoy what Rock Valley Bible Church is. Longing for them to come and help build a church with us. And along with that, another thing we've lost is just having people in our, our house. In the early days of Rock Valley Bible Church, we'd prepare food. We, not we. Avon would prepare food and we'd have, it, we'd have it at home and we'd be watching for something new. And, and that day we'd say, hey, we, we cooked some extra food at home. Would you like to come over and have some food at our house? We used to do that often. And it's been a while since we've done that. kind of our heart for new people, our heart to gather with new people. We, we, we used to do that. We don't do that anymore. Maybe the things in your life that once was precious to you, but you've lost your love for that. Maybe it would be helpful for you to have a discussion, husbands and wives with each other, say, you know what, 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 what about us? Is there, are there things that we have lost? The things we used to do but won't, don't do anymore and the way I'm asking it that way is, what is it that you used to do, but don't do anymore? Right? Because that's the idea, right? They have abandoned their, their love you had at first. At first, they had a love for something, and it was then abandoned. It was let go. So it was something they had before, but now they don't have it. So it's not like something new that you should 
It's something that you used to have or used to do or used to have that affection. You've done it before. It's not like out of your grip, but somehow you've just sort of lost that. And the cure, verse 5, is my next point. It says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The command's clear. Remember, repent, and repeat. Right? Three R's right there. Remember, repent, and repeat. And, and, and again, what I love here about Jesus calling us to do, he, he's just calling us to do what we used to do. Where was your affection? But now that you've spent a generation in church, or now that you've spent years in church, what has changed? And he's calling you back to, like, what, what were you like when you had a, a greater love and a zeal for those things? That's why I've asked the question, what, what are some things you used to do you don't do anymore? And we can come up with excuses, right? I mean, some of our excuses, right? Things change. And regarding us, right, when the church was beginning, we needed people to survive, but also we didn't have as many activities of what we do now. We don't have discipleship groups. We didn't have the, the number of contacts, right, that... Um, but it's a church filled with people. Then you fill with time of discipleship, administration we didn't have in early days. It's not an excuse. And you might have excuse as well. And it makes total sense. Right? Absolutely makes sense. And you can, you can do that. But you just got to say, are there things that we did that we're not doing now? And I just call us all to return. Maybe some things you used to do you don't do. The consequences are dire. Jesus says in verse 5, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did first. Interesting here, right? How much works oriented it is. Right? Because repentance is works oriented. Right? I mean, that's what repentance means. It means you're doing something this way, you repent, you turn from that, and you're doing something else. Now, that's not loveless, right? That's not faithless. It's not without hope, right? There's attitudes which are driving that, but he's, he's driving at, right? Where's the heart? Where's the passion that you used to do, but you're not doing anymore and if you don't if you don't remember repent and repeat i will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent what's a lampstand remember what's a lampstand church because i'm going to remove your church unless you repent now this happened in history at church at ephesus isn't there anymore in fact this happens throughout most Every churches, very few churches can trace back their history in our country, 100, 200, 300 years. The church has been around for 100 years. It's amazing. It's encouraging. But churches who have been around for a long time still can die. In fact, even this morning, right? A dear church of ours, a sister church, if you will, Morning Star Church, has their last Sunday morning worship service this morning. Very sad. Uh, now, I'm not saying they're closing their church because they've left their first love, but they're not the only small church closing its doors. It can happen to us. In fact, even with Morningstar, there's a particular vulnerability that Yvonne and I have felt in recent days. Just like, because Morningstar is Rock Valley Bible Church. Like, we are very much sister churches, very much similar things there. And if they have lost their lampstand. What about us? It's a question we are really asking. And it might just be we need to return to our first love. 
repent and do those things. And Morningstar isn't the only church in town that has flourished at one time and, and then died out. Right? Elam Baptist Church, Betty, Bonnie, was a flourishing church. Gone away. Shiloh, Evangelical Free Church, was a flourishing church at one time. Has passed away. We've even heard of another church. I don't think it's totally public yet. Maybe a smaller church dying. We've heard about it two weeks ago here in Rockford. We're fragile. And we may go the path here of having Christ remove our lampstand from this place. But, it, but if he does, may it be not because we've lost our first love. May you repent and seek to do the things you did at first. For us and Yvonne, it's like, okay, we need to think about new visitors and we need to think about having people over to our house more for dinner, for whatever, just other things. What about as a church? Are the things we used to do it as a church that we're not doing anymore? You know, I remember, I, I've been harping on prayer meeting a lot. I remember there was a time in prayer meeting where we had 30, 40 people at prayer meeting. You guys remember, who, how many of you were there when Gordy Bell was leading prayer meeting and we had that many people there? Maybe you've lost, have you, did you used to go to prayer meeting? Why don't you come again? We had maybe 13 of us today, 15, 12, I don't know, something like that. I think it's important to express your love for God to come and pray. You can make excuses. Bring your kids. Right? We used to have all of our kids all lined up for prayer meeting. Oh, we got to practice music. Figure it out. Right? We can do that. You're always going to have excuses, right? We're always going to be able to do that. But I think that's even as a church, that's one thing. Maybe us as a church, we've lost a little bit of a zeal of inviting people. You know, these, these cards, even, even my own self, just even thinking about how much, how much marketing are we doing as a church to reach out, to really push, to say, hey, are you, are you inviting people? Are you inviting your friends? Are you inviting your neighbors to, to come to church? Maybe that's a love you used to have. Maybe that's a love. And, I, and again, I'm not saying, well, have you ever invited someone to church? No, I've never invited someone to church. Well, you've got to start. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, what have you done before? And why just do what you used to do? That's what we need to do. May God grant us repentance this morning. Revelation, this is an easy book, okay? This is it's enduring through persecution. This is cultivating again affection and love for what you had and, and returning to your first love. All right, let's finish up here quickly. Commendation. I've mentioned this before already. Jesus says this, Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Okay, That's good. That's a good thing. And again, we have no idea who the Nicolaitans are. Uh, one of the seven uh, proto-deacons in Acts chapter 6, along with Stephen, was a man named Nicholas. Some say that's who it was. We have no idea. But Jesus here commends them. And I think it's a sign that Jesus added this. It's a sign of love that, that though he hit them hard in verse 4, in verse 5, in verse 6 even, he's just saying, but you're good. You got this. We're good. You hate the Nicolaitans. It's a good thing, right? You can come back. So I think it's a, it's a sign of really encouragement for us. Which, by the way, also, um, just real practical, if you're looking for some personal, um, personal counsel, if you ever need to confront someone, 
use the Ephesian sandwich. Say something good about them. Slide in what your confrontation is and then affirm something good about them afterwards. It's really helpful. I found it helpful in my pastoral ministry. Commend what you can, address the issue, and then commend later. And that's what he's doing here with the commendation. And then we have finally the the call. Verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let us all hear, scoop in on uh, the Ephesian mail. Let's listen to them. Let's listen to what's there. And just having it here, it's not just saying, hey, just listen. But the idea of hearing is, is obeying, submitting, right? When you, when you hear, you do. Like, okay, I hear you. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I'm there. To the one who conquers, and here's the promise, here's the call. We all want to be conquered, right? And how do we conquer? It's interesting also, when, whenever this word conquering is used, it's always used with reference to whatever he's talking about. So in this case, how would we conquer? We would conquer by capturing our first love. By recapturing that. And as we recapture our first love, he says, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. There's a promise of eternal life. There's a promise of conquering is meaning that you are going to enjoy of the tree of life. In Revelation, this is, this is right at the end in chapter 22. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne and of the Lamb. And in the middle of the street of the city, on either side of the river, was the tree of life. With its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And then it just speaks about how we just get to eat of that. This is, this is life. And it may just be not returning to your first love. Could be an issue of not drinking, not eating from the tree of life. It may be. Not saying that it is always, but here, the one who conquers, right? The one who returns to his first love, I'm going to grant you to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And here's right where Revelation all just ties together, right? And this is where all the Bible tiles ties together. The Bible started in a garden in Eden with paradise. Jesus, the cross, even promised a thief today would be with me in paradise. And here it comes, it's in the paradise of God. Eventually, in the garden, you get to eat of that, you get to live. Right there, so cultivate your first love. Whatever you've lost, however big, however small, insignificant or significant, cultivate that and seek to, seek to pursue again afresh the ways of God. So let me pray. Father, I pray that we indeed would heed the call of Ephesus. God, we are, we are that church. We build with lots of activity, discerning, Doctrinally, and the, the solution, oh God, isn't God to drop our doctrinal discernment and drop our grasp of the truth, but our, our solution, God, is to pursue with wholehearted love the things that we used to pursue with love. God, so help us in these things. I, I pray your spirit, just want to hear what the spirit says to the churches, that your spirit would deeply convict all of us. God, even for our survival as a church, for our lampstand to continue to glow. I pray, God, that you would, would grant us repentance and help us so we might remember where we were and repent and then repeat what we've done before. God, so be with us and strengthen us for those things. Convict us all where we need to be convicted so that we might walk rightly with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.